we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Been up to that the man in the street can relate to, <laughs> or the woman, or the woman. I had to do a talk last night and actually had to give the Christopher Ricks lecture at King Alfred's Academy in Wantage. So it was a bit of an honour to do it. And I, I, to be honest, I basically just did a, a fifty minutes is quite a long time to speak. I mean, I can tell you, it's it's nearly six thousand words of a printed out lecture. How do you written 6,000 words? I had written 6,000 words. words, yeah. So, was, and then they, they had students interview me. But I basically just did my, the books that made me, that classic thing. Of, so starting with Great Northern by Arthur Ransom, oh, which is the yeah. first book I remember choosing in a library and taking home and reading because I was nuts about birds. And it was the last of the Swallows and Amazon. But a good place to start. And then there's quite a bit about Willa Cather and I read a bit of Sarah Hall and I read a bit of... I was basically putting a prop, five propositions and why reading is an important thing. You know, the kind of thing you do all the time. Why we should read books. <laughs> yeah, why well, you should like, read books, concentrate, finish them, all the, all those all things, the Puritan all stuff. That, all yeah. that stuff. And did you did you? And I finished, on, I finished with a great thing about ambiguity and Dickens and the, 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 the Christopher Ricks was the person who introduced to me the shocking fact that Great Expectations had an original ending, which is so much better than the, the one that most people know, mm-hmm. which is where he rather wimps out. He was encouraged by Bulwer Lytton to, to soften the ending, so he gets, sort of gets Estella and Pitt back together in the end. And they were never parted. There's no shadow of another party. That was the it. final. final. I'll paraphrase. But in the, in the original, wrong, he's, in Piccadilly, <laughs> he's in Piccadilly with Little Pip, who Estella mistakes for being his own son, and it's it's obviously Biddy and, and Joe's son. And there's a fantastic sentence, which I won't paraphrase now, the last sentence, one of the great sentences, like sort of Gatsby-like. She knew that, you know, what mm. she'd put me through and her heart knew what my heart had once been. And it's just brilliant, but sadly not the... So I was talking about how it's possible in fiction to do that, constant multiple reworkings of the same thing. I'm afraid somebody mentioned Priestley, Oh, Inspector Calls. I just, so I just groaned loudly and said, what the fuck are we doing pushing this kind of... It's not even the best of Priestley. What are we doing? Why are we forcing all these children from every kind of corner of the land to hate yeah. literature by, mm. by getting them to read this stuff? I should think most English teachers have had enough of totally teaching yeah. and Inspector Calls by now. God. And they... I know. How much more is there to say? My son's doing it at the moment. Oh, it's not really. I know. We had it last year. Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it is like some sort of weird, grisly ritual that you have to go through. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine that's some sort of like if you were going to be cursed as a writer, that's exactly what you would. You know, your worst fear is that you'd be on a GCSE kind of curriculum also list, read and hated by spoilers everyone. As it's Halloween, he's a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am sorry. Is he though? Is ah, he? Is he? That's ambiguity. <laughs> <laughs> and that's ambiguity. And anyway, I didn't get heckled. It's all right. Mm. Are, of course, I'll, I Soft get crowd. usual usual questions about scoring in QI. It's only any, anyone ever cares about. <laughs> <laughs> mumble, mumble, mumble. Shall we start this? Shall we start this thing? Yeah. Um, hello, and welcome to a special Halloween edition of Matlisted, the podcast that raises books from the grave. Today you find us in spectral mode, moving soundlessly through the cool autumnal air from quiet townhouses in New York to ancient Dorsetshire manors, 
to wind-battered cottages on the Breton coast in search of who knows what. I'm John Mitchison, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and joining us today are two revenants from backlisted past. Welcome back. The ghost of Lisa Evans. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Writer, hello. producer, director and author of three children's books and five novels, including most recently Old Baggage, a book I have praised extravagantly and justifiably so on this very podcast. Lisa joined us on our very first episode and to talk about A Month in the Country by J.L. Carr. And then she came back to talk about The Slaves of Solitude by Patrick Hamilton. And uh, I ambushed her by (laughs) then making her talk about Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. And we're recording this on the evening of the announcement of the Man Booker Prize. We don't know what it will be yet. Lissa, is there a contemporary novel that you have enjoyed recently? Well, yes, and very appropriately, it's um, Sarah Perry's Melmoth, which is dark, it's whirling, it, it... it tosses you from story to story. It's about guilt. It's about despair. I really loved it. I read it in about three minutes. <laughs> Was she published after the cutoff of the booker? Or I don't know how it works. I don't know. You know, too popular. Sarah Perry. The, this it's novel seems to novel. be attracting uh, some excellent reviews, such as yours, Lisa, and some mixed reviews elsewhere. And the mixed reviews that I've read do seem to be very, very squarely in the bracket of. We built them up last time and now it's time to knock them down. So it's really nice to see you, in, to hear you enthusing about it. That's good. I really loved it. I absolutely loved it. And there, there are passages that you, you reread and they, they, they stir you up like a, like a wand stirring... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I've run out of metaphors. That's, that's just to remind listeners it's our Halloween episode. Yes, yes. We're also joined by Andrew Mayle. Welcome back, Andrew. Hello. Fourth time. <laughs> Fourth time for Andrew Mayo. The resident resident. He is our Halloween returnee. He's been on all our Halloween episodes and he's back again. The first year you did Robert Aitman. Yeah. Last year you did... Uh, Shirley Jackson. Shaky Shirley. Our most popular episode ever. Still. Yeah. Uh, Andrew is the senior associate editor of Mojo magazine and he writes about film, radio and TV for Sight and Sound and Sunday Times Culture. And if Batlisted has a resident ghost, it would surely be... <laughs> Andrew Mayle, so welcome back. We're here to talk about Ghosts by Edith Wharton, a collection of 11 stories she made and introduced shortly before she died in 1937. The book was published most appropriately, posthumously. (laughs) But first, before we get on to the ghostly tales of Edith Wharton, let's gather a little closer around the fireside, for Andy has a tale to tell. (laughs) What what, what have you been reading, Andy? I've been reading... Okay, so this week I have read... (laughs) Daphne du Maurier's final novel, published in 1972, Rule Britannia. Right, I'm just going to read you the blurb on the first, the hardback. I've never read any of Daphne du Maurier's famous books. I've only read this and I'll Never Be Young Again, which was one of the most insane, as her second novel, absolutely crackers, was written when she was 25. And it seems, uh, Andrew and I always say this, it has... Not necessarily in a good way this time. It does seem to have been made up as she was going along. <laughs> she just thought, oh, I wonder what I should write about today. I know. Anyway, this is her final novel, The Other End, from 1972. And this is the first paragraph of the blurb of the original edition, the Harmback edition. Emma, who lives in Cornwall with her grandmother, a famous retired actress, wakes one morning to find that the world has apparently gone mad. No post, no telephone, no radio a warship in the bay, and American soldiers advancing across the field towards the house. The time is a few years in the future. England has withdrawn from the common market and on the brink of (laughs) bankruptcy has decided that salvation lies in a union, political, military and economic, with the United States. (laughs) Theoretically, it is to be an equal partnership, but to some people it soon begins to look like a takeover bid. My word. So this is Daphne du Maurier's Brexit Cassandra <laughs> Prophet novel. <laughs> Who knew she had one? But she does. It is, and I tell you what, it's Bonkers. not her best, <laughs> but I haven't read her best, but it's utterly mad. It is one of the strangest, um, again, she seems to occupy a really interesting zone in how she writes, where she feels her way towards what the net, next bit of action is going to be it's clearly not very carefully plotted she knows how she wants to start 
She knows where she thinks she's going to end up. And then she just tosses anything she feels like into the pot, pot and pot as she's going along. I found it really readable while also thinking, what, this, this is nuts. This is properly nuts. And what she tries to do is she tries to give you a picture of a Cornish village, which under US occupation, different shopkeepers and members of the community and children are affected in different ways. And one of the ways they're affected is that one of the uh, retired actresses, brood of adopted children, in, in a reprisal for a US Marine shooting their dog, <laughs> shoots a different US Marine through the forehead with a bow and arrow. Well, that seems fair. I mean, she <laughs> killed the dog, right? Andy. And then there's that, a mo- that and then the book the, that becomes, explains the graphic cover of it. Yeah. And, then, and then the book becomes a moral discussion of what, how right or wrong it is to take life. D- Daphne Du Maurier seems to kind of say it's it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Shooting US Marines with arrows because they're Marines and they're Americans. And they killed the dog. And they killed yeah. the dog. That's fine. It's fine. Nothing to worry about. So so clearly when this book came out, it, it was sort of, it did get mixed reviews and also quite difficult for the marketing department to position. I'll just read you a paragraph. Spry, the farm collie, a wizard with his master's sheep, but terrified of all explosive sounds from thunderstorms to aircraft flying low must have escaped from his safe lair at the farmstead over the hill and was now running as if for his life across the field in front of the advancing soldiers. One of the men paused and took aim but did not shoot. Then, as another helicopter roared low over the roof, Spry, in panic, turned at bay towards the advancing soldier, barking fiercely as was his wont with strangers upon his territory, and this time the soldier fired. God rot his guts, cried Mad. Spry was no longer the guardian of his master's flock but something bleeding and torn, not even a dog. You're trying to kill me, Andy. Uh, I mean, you I know. Mean, you know, that's the thing. Is the lead character called Mad? Yes. <laughs> How good is that? Right? No mucking about. So, by the time the paperback comes out, how are they going to sell this crazy book? Praise quotes from the hardback review. All right, I'm going to read you the blurb on the back. It's magnificent. You and I read the quotes on the back of this book and both went, mm, there was some scraping going on here. Here we go. So you remember the previous one was quite thoughtful, wasn't yeah. it? Like, the Americans seize England and one woman defies them, <laughs> exclamation mark. US Marines land in Cornwall and Mad, a world-famous ex-actress, autocratic and irresistible, rallies her family, friends and neighbours to protect their heritage. This is what's going to happen in the next few months. This needs to be read in the uh, two Ronnies, Charlie Farley and Peggy (laughs) Malone voice, doesn't it? (laughs) Unforgettable characters from the enchanted pen of a favourite storyteller hold you spellbound as they live more dangerously, more excitingly, more spectacularly than any of Trelawney's countrymen since danger last threatened these shores. Now now somebody is (laughs) over-egging quite a a pudding with an unusual taste. Can I just say? Anyway, so what? Here are the here are the review quotes. The Sunday Telegraph said the spirit of Britannia embodied. The Observer noted the Du Maurier touch still entices. (laughs) 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 Putting my elbow into the lukewarm bath. There's some giant butts after these, aren't they? Consistently entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) Bellows the Sunday Times, and finally from the Mirror. Du Maurier's best-selling novel is a political thriller. (laughs) That was the best bit of the You know what? I I really, I suspect there has never been a better time. We need four. We haven't got four. We've got three at best. We need four. (laughs) Well, well, just print it. It doesn't matter. They'll only read the first three. They won't look at the mirror. (laughs) I reckon there's never been a better moment in history than now to read Daphne Du Maurier's Rule Britannia. I thought what I might actually do is read uh, Rebecca. Next. John, what have you been Loved her. Loved her. (laughs) I hated her. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Shut up. John, what have you been been reading this week? I have been reading uh, Pure Delight, which is a memoir, an unexpected late gift from Alan Garner, one of my favourite writers, as you will all know from previous podcasts. His memoir, Where Shall We Run To?, which is a short, exquisitely written book about his childhood. And I was 
puzzled because I thought in a, in a way he'd kind of written about his childhood through Stonebook Quartet, the history of his family. He'd written beautiful essays in The Voice That Thunders. And I wondered what was left to tell. Well, I didn't really need to wonder. I mean, if Garner's writing a book, there's got to be a reason for it. And it, it is a series of about 15 short anecdotes. Many of them are set during the war years because he was war generation. So there's a lot of gas masks. There are nettles pushing, being pushed into nettles. There's bullying. There is, you know, keeping a pet budgie that dies. It's very 1940s. There's fabulously comics, including one I'd never heard of. Stonehenge Kit, the ancient Brit who fights <laughs> Wizzy the Wicked Wizard and the Brit Bashers. That's wow. <laughs> so I just think, I just love the idea of, you know, Cadell in the White started life as Wizzy the Wicked Wizard in, in some... Uh, <laughs> so he writes beautifully and brilliantly about, about his classmates. He writes, obviously, about his illness. He fell very seriously ill and nearly died of diphtheria. And so he spent a lot of his early life, which is probably the making of him in, mm. in Living on the Ceiling, when the essays in Voice of Thunders, he writes about... His, how his imagination was allowed to, in this sort of semi-doped-up state, thinking uh, he invented kind of worlds on his ceiling. But the thing I like most about it is that knowing how funny he is, you know, you're not overburdened with laughs in, in, in the fiction, but there's some very, very funny scenes. And I'm going to read you just one quick one here. This is about Mr Noon, who is the moon-faced caretaker of the school, who... <laughs> He's break. He's got. He's also a cobbler, so it's classic sort of. Everybody's a craftsman of some kind. This is about him and his wife and his, the, the house that they live in, and the bad thing that happened to them. The bad thing that happened to them involves a man called Glyn Ridgeway. <laughs> I don't know why. Glyn Ridgeway <laughs> lived in the back streets and worked for the council. He did the jobs that didn't need him to be clever, and one day he came to get rid of the rats that were in the main sewer down the middle of Trafford Road. He opened the manhole cover by turning a key on the end of a rod with a handle on top. There was a deep shaft to the water with iron rungs to climb on. But this day, Glyn Ridgeway didn't go down. He'd bought a sack of carbide and he lifted the cover outside our house and poured the carbide into the shaft so it would mix with the water and the gas would kill the rats. When he saw the water was bubbling and fizzing, he put the cover back and locked it. But as he locked it, as he locked the cover, he dropped his cigarette end down the shaft. The gas exploded and the force of the explosion went along the sewer so fast it couldn't escape sideways into the house drains. It went all the way along Trafford Road to the end. But at the end, the very last house on the sewer in Tyler Street was Mr Noon's. Mrs Noon was sitting on the lavatory and the explosion came up the drain and lifted the lavatory off its base and threw Mrs Noon into the air. (laughs) Mr Noon was at home and he heard the crash and Mrs Noon screaming. When he got to her, he found her on the floor among the pieces of the bowl with the seat round her neck and her knickers round her ankles. I don't remember how we knew this last bit, but that was what everybody said happened. (laughs) Mrs Noon wasn't hurt, although she was under the doctor with nerves for a long time after, and Mr Noon retired. But by then, the war was over, and the Chelford boys, that was the local bullies, didn't come anymore. It's just lovely. Right. I mean, it's complete bliss. It, take, it takes no time to read. We're all, we're all Garner fans I gathered mean, here, aren't we, anyway? It's minor Garner, I suppose, in the overall scheme of things, but it's... It's it, some Garner. It, um, but the point is, yeah. it's, it's, it's every word, as usual, in the right place. Yeah. Uh, great fun. OK, it's time now for an advert. So, we've talked about Daphne du Maurier, and we've talked about Alan Garner. Now let us turn our attention to Ghosts by Edith Wharton. So Edith Wharton, is she well known for her ghost stories, do you think? She might be in our world, but I don't think she is generally, is she? She's in every anthology I've ever seen. She is. I think the thing is, it's a question that she is if you like ghost stories. But not everybody seeks out and reads ghost stories, I don't think. Yeah, I still think they're niche. And I think the people who re- who've read Age of Innocence or Custom of the Country or Ethan Frome might not even know that she writes mm. ghost stories. So I think if you're into ghost stories, you know of Edith Wharton because probably the, one of the first ghost story anthology you read probably had an Edith Wharton story in it, and it was probably yeah, yeah. afterward. So I think if you know your ghost stories, you know about Edith Wharton. But I think conversely, if you know your Edith Wharton, you may not know about her ghost stories. Yeah, so Lisa, when did you yeah. first first encounter Edith Wharton's ghost stories? Well, I had probably the greatest present I ever had when I was about 12 or 13. It was a box set of the Fontana 
ghost stories. I think it was it was four of them in there, and they infused my consciousness for for years and probably prevented sleep for just as yeah. many years. But uh, one of them was uh, a story called Afterward, as yeah. you said, by Edith Wharton, and uh, it it has stayed in my head for all these years, and um and therefore you know. I, I carried on enjoying ghost stories and I, I therefore spotted her. Yeah. I kept spotting her, you know, as, as I read on in, in in future years. And do you think that is actually the first time that you had heard of Edith Wharton? Well, was that your 12, intro- yeah. So, yeah. Well, I assumed you were precocious, but yes, of course. Well, obviously I'd be. already read The Age of Innocence. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a given, but... But but it probably was the first time that you'd encountered Edith Wharton. Yes, and, then, yes. and so and so I find that fascinating because you're coming out the other way round, where you think of her as this author of uncanny tales, so you then discover actually has this huge body of literary work, yes. um, which exists. Well, we'll we'll come on to this. They don't exist apart from one another. It seems to me that the ghost stories are very much in the continuum of the things that Edith Wharton writes about, anyway. But they. She twists it slightly. Mm. Andrew, where, uh, when did you first encounter Edith Wharton's ghost stories? In this book that I've brought along here, the Virago Book of Ghost Stories, the 20th Century, Volume 2. I'd previously devoured the Virago Book of Ghost Stories, the Victorian, of Victorian Ghost Stories, and uh, Volume 1, um, because of the editor, a chap called Richard Dolby, who um, I had been following because he put together excellent compilations of ghost stories and in my early 20s late teens early 20s I was obsessed with reading ghost stories and I have probably got Richard Dolby to thank for introducing me to Edith Wharton and yes the story in the collection is afterward but also introducing me to Virago (laughs) because I was I'd read some women authors in my late teens early 20s but I'd been wary of Edith Wharton purely on the on the sound of her name. It didn't sound like it was a lot of fun if we called Edith Wharton. They kind of they sounded quite kind Fantastic. of tough. Well, yeah, give, I know. Give me well, a name come that sounds exciting to you in, the, in your twenties. Which what, what? H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> well, they, exactly, and kind of you know Edith in in the you know in the mid eighties, Edith wasn't the most um, popular name or the most exciting name, kind of. So, and I was and I was and I was a young man seeking thrills and adventure. <laughs> Hormones and, running right. Yeah, Edith, eh? Um, and so, thank you, Richard Dolby, for a making me realise that women write the best ghost stories. Um, it's true. It is, and also introducing me to the imprint of Virago, which has become probably my favourite. Is there a Demoriere in there? Because I think she's a superb. There is the pool. Oh, okay. Not yeah. not one of my favourites, but, no. uh, but she's uh, I mean, I mean just a quick rundown the the people in here: A.S. Byatt, Celia Fremlin, Rebecca West, Daphne Du Maurier, Penelope Lively, E. Nesbitt, Jean Rees, Ruth Rendell, Jean Edith Rees. Yeah, yeah, I used to live here once by Jean Rees. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, absolutely fantastic, invaluable book. But that's the route I came to Edith, like you. I came to Edith Wharton so, through the ghost stories. So let's let me say a little bit about what this book is. It's a collection called Ghosts, and it was published in 1937. As John said earlier, it was actually published posthumously, but it was Edith Wharton's own selection of what she considered to be her best supernatural tales. And the only book she wrote an introduction for. Yes, Mm. and she also wrote a preface. Now, listeners, if you intend to read along with us (laughs) um, the the collection Ghosts, um, you actually... It's not as straightforward as just buying uh, or downloading a volume of Edith Wharton's ghost stories. There are at least four or five different editions and different versions, all of which have different stories in. I've worked out um, it was actually quite difficult to discover what stories were in were included in ghosts. Um, and one of the things that I realised about Edith Wharton, which, funnily, funnily enough, our former guest, I was listening to an interview with our former guest, Hermione Lee, biographer Edith Wharton, and she was saying even 10 years ago, Wharton's... Um, there is no collected edition of Edith Wharton's works. Interesting. Uh, unlike her friend, Henry James, who I'm, no, I'm sure we'll talk about. Her, she fell off, didn't she? Her yeah. reputation fell off yeah. quite sharp. And, and still nobody has taken the time to publish a complete edition so there's all sorts of different collections out there and variations 
If you want to read Ghosts, the selection that Edith Wharton made herself, you will need <laughs> the Virago edition of the Ghost Stories of Edith Wharton and the Wordsworth edition of the Ghost Stories of Edith Wharton. Only the Virago one has her brilliant preface in it, which we'll hear a bit more um, of in a moment. But these are the stories that you need. These are the stories that were in Ghosts. They are The Lady's Maid's Bell, The Eyes, Afterward, which we were just talking about, Kerfol, The Triumph of Night, Miss Mary Pasque, Bewitched, A Bottle of Perrier, Mr Jones, Pomegranate Seed, and All Souls. And All Souls is was the only original story in this collection. It's one of the last things that Wharton wrote. Um, we might mention that later on as well, because it's fascinating in terms of how it lives in her um, work and her relation to her own work. So I'm sorry if that's all a bit, I mean, it's a bit complex and you can always rewind it and write it down. But fundamentally, we are, because we're backlisted, we're concentrating on an actual book rather than just the ghost stories of Edith Wharton. I didn't really have her down as ghost story writer, but then I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not an obsessive consumer of the genre. Although I am interested in what you say about some people. I, I love ghost stories and, I want, and I'm always happy to read more. Mm. I'm interested in what you say, people who don't like them. I left this seemingly innocuous book on the table today and one of the members of staff asked me if I would move it because it was freaking her out. Wow. It just says the ghost stories of Edith Wharton and there's a picture of a, a bell which is kind of hanging from a, a door fixture. It's about as scary as a screw fix catalog. <laughs> I, I, I would find that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there, is, that yes. there is an Edith Wharton link there. Go on. Because <laughs> she used to be terrified by books containing ghost stories. Yes, she did. In The Backward Glance, her autobiography, she writes that until I was 27 or 8, I could not sleep in the room with a book containing a ghost story. I had to frequently burn books of this kind. Because, it, fri because it frightened me to know that they were downstairs in the library. Oh, my God. Yes. I, I, stop me if I've told you the terrible uh, Dave Trott story about the exorcist. Did I tell, did I tell this in the back? <laughs> Listeners will know. Um, he had a friend who'd been completely f so freaked out by reading The Exorcist. He said, you know what I'm going to do? He said, I'm gonna, it's, I, don't, I can't have it in my house. I can't have it anywhere. I'm going to drive to, go to the end of the pier in Brighton, throw it in the sea this week. I never want to see it again. So Trotty got a copy of it at the weekend, second-hand copy, ran it under his tap and left it in the guy's desk. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's dead now, but it's a great story. It, oh, that's there, is, there is something about um, there yeah. is something about getting freaked out, isn't there? But that's what I mean, that's one of the fans, fascinating things about Wharton, that she kind of writes that out of her system. Yeah. But also, and I know it's kind of a cliche to give Freudian readings of ghost stories, but there's so much about unearthing the subconscious in these stories and all this stuff that she'd kept buried, especially during her marriage. So once she leaves her husband, this all comes to the surface. Well, this wouldn't be backlisted if we weren't joined by the shade of Anita Bruckner. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> What's the timing on that? Probably 22 yeah. minutes yeah. in. Yeah. Bruckner yeah, no, said this about Wharton's writing. She said, um, the enormous power of sex a phenomenon to which no overt reference is made yeah. is apparent in everything Edith Wharton wrote. I wrote that down! I wrote <laughs> there is so much sex yeah. in this Sex to her was not merely an affair of the body, but the untrammeled enjoyment of the will and of destiny. As long as men and women seek to use each other and to use each other badly, Edith Wharton can be counted upon to provide the ideal commentary. Oh, damn it, because I've written something yeah. down and now I've got to compete with Anita Bruckner. Because <laughs> what I wrote was, in some ways, these stories are the antithesis of M.R. James. Yes. Where you've got it's... someone seer, dry, academic, yeah. who's, who's trying to cope yeah. with elemental, impersonal forces, yeah. because these are corporeal. Yeah. They are about lust, they're about power, they're about love, and they always involve people, real people. Not, there's nothing... There's nothing ethereal. Well, James's sexuality and his fear of sex is buried so far down in those stories. I mean, occasionally there is a, you know, 
a hairy mouth with teeth that grabs, you know. <laughs> it's so subsumed, but whereas here, it's just below the surface, yes. isn't it? It's like the ghost, the, the ghost is the subtext yes. in these stories. Let's yeah. just talk about the story afterward a bit, because we, we mentioned uh, that Which, earlier, it seems a good way in. Yeah. Which is a, a, utterly oh, perfect. magnificent. Yeah. So that was written in 1910. I have my notes in front of me, so I can offer a synopsis, which without spoiling the story. Yeah. Mary Boyne and her husband are Americans who have profited in speculation at the Blue Star Mining Company. And they buy a house in England, in Dorsetshire, called Ling. And they're told it's haunted, as all English country houses must be. And you'll see the ghost, but you won't realise you've seen the ghost till afterward. Long, Uh, long Long afterward. And so we've got a clip here from a Granada series called... Shades of Darkness, which was broadcast in the mid-1980s. We're at the point in the story where Mary Boyne, the house's owner, is waiting for a visitor, and then she sees a stranger. Oh, yeah. I didn't see you, excuse me. I came to see Mr Boyne. Ah, yes, about the hot water pipes. Well, my husband's working in his study, but you'll find our gardener in the greenhouse. I'll show you the way. You're not from Gloucester, are you, about the pipes in the greenhouse? I came to see Mr. Boyne personally. Have you an appointment with my husband? I think he expects me. Hmm, about his book, I imagine. Well, I'm afraid he doesn't see anyone in the mornings. It's his working time and he doesn't like to be disturbed. May I ask, have you come a long way? Yes, I have come a long way. Well, then I'm sure he'll make an exception. If you go in... By the front entrance, you'll find him in the library. It's the first door on the left. Thank you. Excuse me if I don't come with you, but I am waiting for someone from Gloucester. The dialogue, they're very faithful to the dialogue. Mm-hmm. That dialogue is lifted directly from the story. It's quite hard talking about it, isn't it? Because you don't want to yeah. totally give away the well, ending. But I, I will say about this story, and that it's typical of Edith Wharton in that her stories are atypical of ghost stories often. It's suffused in sunlight. If yes. you think about afterward, it's about a sunlit, yeah. beautiful landscape. There isn't a shadow in it. No. That's it. Everything takes place in, in broad daylight. Extraordinary. But the, the other brilliant thing about it is, I mean, because obviously Edith Wharton wrote about houses. She wrote about interiors. She wrote about interior design. And she writes about houses beautifully. And with the and house, she, she the house designed beca- and, and sort of built. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Sure. And the way in which the house becomes a character. And there's a bit, can I just read a bit from afterward, because we're on it, just in terms of like how the silent house becomes this thing of terror. No, she would never know what had become of him. No one would ever know. But the house knew. The library in which she spent her long, lonely evenings knew, for it was here that the last scene had been enacted, here that the stranger had come and spoken the word which had caused Boyne to rise and follow him. The floor she trod had felt his tread, the books on the shelves had seen his face, and there were moments when the intense consciousness of the old, dusky walls seemed about to break out into some audible revelation of their secret. But the revelation never came and she knew it would never come. Ling was not one of the garrulous old houses that betray the secrets entrusted to them. Its very legend proved that it had always been the mute accomplice, the incorruptible custodian of the mysteries it had surprised. And Mary Boyne, sitting face to face with its silence, felt the futility of seeking to break it by any human means. I mean, that's fantastic, <laughs> isn't it? And also the other great thing is about so many of these stories are about how threatening and evil silence is of not saying. Well, she writes about that in the introduction, doesn't she? She, she does. writes. She writes, now, I, I did write this quote down. Um, Ghosts to make themselves manifest require two conditions abhorrent to the modern mind, silence and continuity. Yeah. And do you know mm. what made me think, actually? Just, just off sideways was how many modern uh, films use CCTV footage, which have both those qualities yes. of course, silence oh, and continuity. A, yeah, absolutely. That, it's, so, it's so good that introduction, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Really the, the beginning of it. Good it's as witty well. as well. It's yes, really she's witty. Funny. Do you believe in ghosts? Is the pointless question <laughs> often addressed by those who are incapable of feeling ghostly influences? To I will not say the ghost seer, always a rare bird, but the ghost feeler. 
the person sensible of invisible currents of being in certain places and at certain hours. The celebrated reply, I forget whose, no, I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm afraid of them, is much more than the cheap paradox it seems to many. To believe in that sense is a conscious act of the intellect, and it is in the warm darkness of the prenatal fluid far below our conscious reason that the faculty dwells with which we apprehend the ghosts we may not be endowed with the gift of seeing. Oh. You know, Bruckner said that Wharton was incapable of writing a bad sentence. Yeah. And every single bit that we're reading out in these stories which were written to be published in magazines, yeah. this yeah. is one they're of the things about Wharton. Stories. They yeah. are casual yeah. stories, they are delight, they are intended to and yet they're so perfectly turned. Mm. Further on, she just I'd love this. No one ever expected a Latin to understand a ghost <laughs> or shiver over it. To do that, one must still have in one's ears the hoarse music of the northern Urwald or the churning of dark seas on the outermost shores. <laughs> one of the things I really liked about Ghosts as a collection and the fact that it's called Ghosts is that it contains, well, we'll talk about one in a moment, but it contains actual ghost stories mm. where you unambiguously see a ghost mm. And it contains stories that have seemingly no ghosts in them at all, where the ghostly presence is purely psychological mm. or purely imagined. And if anything, she goes from The Lady's Maid Bell, which is the earliest story mm. in this collection, which is one of the ones in which the ghost appears. Mm. But at the same time, that story, uh, I don't know how you felt. I'd never read it before. Yeah. It was one of the stories where I said to you, Andrew, I ended it and went, what? Yeah. What? Talk about ambiguity. I, I had to go back and read it again. <laughs> yeah. And even then. And the, one and of then... the brilliant things is so many of her narrators are ill. They're mm. sick or they're weak. We like with typhoid and they're kind of, they've been to sanatoriums and they are not to be trusted. So there is a, you know, there's a point all the way through where you think, well, how much of this is an unsound mind telling you this story? And the lady's maid, uh, the, the the heroine of the lady, well, it's not the heroine, the, the lady of yeah. the lady's maid, but is... Um, He's bullied, he's an abused wife. Yes. And in fact, there, there is a rape in the book. Yeah. It's absolutely, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the story, it's absolutely extraordinary, of course, alluded to, of course, between the lines, yeah. but there is no yeah, doubt yeah. that's what happens. But, but also yes. there is the implication that how he treats her, you know, c contributes to her death as well. It's a, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Let me give the synopsis. Yeah. Yeah. Hartley, yeah. the narrator, yeah. a lady's maid employed by Mrs Brimpton to replace her former maid, the now dead Emma Saxon, played in the Granada TV adaptation by June Brown, a.k.a. Wow. John Cotton. No. Yes. Um, Emma Saxon's ghost appears to Hartley, unambiguously, to do what? <laughs> I'm asking my, my colleagues around the table. What I think is so fascinating about the story yeah. is having presented you with the unambiguous presence yes. of the ghost, yeah. she then the throws it on the reader to decide what is the ghost what trying, what's trying, what's trying yeah. to tell us. Yeah. I mean, that's the great thing, because it, at the end, you have questions about Mr. Brimpton, you have questions about Ranford, like, is Ranford a weak character? Yeah. Does he does he bottle it? You know, what's been they, going on? What's been going books. on? Yeah. Did, you know, was, 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 <laughs> was Mr. Brimpton going to murder Ranford? You know, she, is she there... Also, just, it's... She also also uses those hoary cliches of the ghost story. Oh well, yeah. Which, which is what's brilliant about it. Which is, oh, ladies maid, they don't last ten minutes round here. Yeah, you, know, oh, you won't last long yeah, in that yeah, job. Right. And the other one, if there's the door. Oh, I wouldn't come into that room. Yeah. <laughs> don't open that funny, door. Yeah. But, but she is reworking those cliches of the, of the gothic novels, you know, and the and the gothic short story. Can I read it? Just a, it was very little bit because I was talking about the relationship at the heart of it, which is a. Mrs. Brimpton, her ghastly husband. Yeah. And, I mean, listen to this for, for a description. Yeah. This is nothing to do with ghosts. This is yeah. pure character. About seven, Agnes called me to my mistress's room and there I found Mr. Brimpton. He was standing on the hearth, a big, fair, bull-necked man with a red face and little bad-tempered blue eyes, the kind of man a young simpleton might have thought handsome and would have been like... <laughs> and would have been like to pay dear for thinking it. He swung about when I came in and looked me over in a trice... I knew what the look meant from having experienced it once or twice in my former places. Then he turned his back on me and went on talking to his wife, and I knew what that meant too. I was not the kind of morsel he was after. The typhoid had served me well enough in one way, 
it kept that kind of gentleman at arm's length. <gasps> oh, oh, but I want to I quickly get back to the thing that was John was saying about the kind of the, the, the gothic cliches. I think kind of I think you're absolutely right. It was interesting. One of uh, the, the good book people on Twitter who calls himself Biblioclept, Edwin Turner, and he was saying that. Um, in American literature, the gothic is inescapable. It's this thing that kind of writers are trying to escape from, but they never can, especially male writers, the domestic and the gothic. And I thought this, that's really fascinating in relation to Wharton's ghost stories because they often seem to be about the inability of the modern to free itself from the gothic. But also she uses the gothic to unearth these hidden silent, repressed things, and to punish men a lot of the time. I mean, it's so obvious. Look how many women are in her stories compared yeah. to the average ghost story. Yeah. I mean, it's packed mm. with them. Absolutely. And not just servants, you know. There are, there are women of every profession and every trade, Almost you know. every story is also concerned to some degree or other in marriage or the relationship between men and women. It's, yeah. it's different kind of shades. I mean, some of the ones that weren't in this book, The, the, the Duchess at Prayer, which is... Okay. Um, yeah. that's a that's pure Poe that's yes absolutely it, uh, but this about the statue with the, 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 the well the, the, the Duchess of Prayer she wrote before she wrote uh, the Lady's Maid's Bell yeah. so it's kind of I don't think it's kind of mm-hmm. strictly categorised as it's a ghost, ghost story, story but it yeah. kind of almost it's is it's got the same story at the heart of it as well, well exactly well as yeah. yeah exactly yeah. the same I'm just yeah. going to say a bit about Wharton because I think I thought before I started reading around for this episode I think I thought I knew who Edith Wharton was or I thought what type of writer she was or what type of person mm. she was. And actually, when you look at the biography, I'm going to give you a few things in the biography which um, are fascinating and surprising. So she's born Edith Newbold Jones in New York in 1862, and the Jones family legendarily give their name to the phrase keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> She's a member of a distinguished New York family. She was educated privately in the United States and abroad, and in 1885 she marries Edward Robbins Wharton, disastrously, who was 12 years her senior and from whom she was divorced in 1913. When she was a child, she used to walk around with a book in front of her, doing this thing that the family called Making Up, which was she would read out her own story that she was making up as she went along. No one in that society group knew what to do with this prodigious talent because it wasn't the sort of thing that would help get you the right husband. Her mother famously forbade her to read novels until she was married. It's yeah. an odd thing, that, isn't it? She had to write fiction in secret. <laughs> yeah, and it was and referred to as the family disgrace. Age 15, wow. Edith Wharton wrote a 30,000-word novella called Fast and Loose. <laughs> <laughs> now, that fact, that fact alone, right? Yeah. So her first, book, her first published book was a huge success called The, the Decoration of Houses. Yeah. It's an interior decoration book which she co-wrote. She's divorced in 1913. She spends long periods in France and in Europe. And she's in France during the First World War. She ran a workroom for unemployed, skilled women workers in her quarter. She fed French and Belgian refugees in her restaurants. She took entire charge of 600 Belgian children who had to leave their orphanage at the time of the German advance. And in 1915, the French government gave her the cross of the Legion of Honour. Meanwhile, she's writing... 15 novels, seven novellas, 86 short stories, poetry, travel writing, memoir, literary criticism. She is the first female winner of the Pulitzer Prize in 1921 for The Age of Innocence. She makes the equivalent of $5 million in royalties between 1921 and 1925. And yet by the time she dies, just over 10 years later, she is little red. Yeah. And is having to flog stories to magazines again because she's totally fallen out of favour. Yeah. She was also nominated for the Nobel Prize for Literature three times, 1927, 1928 and 1930, and she never won it. And did, did her reputation lie fallow, as it were, for a long time after she died? Yes. Yeah. And was it sort of the, the Virago revolution Actually, that brought, yes. brought she her is, back into She is yeah. almost rediscovered in the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, in... The early 90s and again in 2000, there are films made yeah. of The Age of Innocence. So a little and, bit like uh, Willa Cather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Do you know what? Yes, actually, very like Willa Cather. We did Willa Cather earlier in the year, yeah. of course, and actually the, the differences and similarities are, are striking and in both cases. Amazingly omnicompetent, mm. brilliant women who are yeah. not just good at writing, but also good at, at running things and yeah. doing things and, you know, kind of commercially astute. It's, it's... I said earlier that Wharton was a famous for her interior uh, design. This is a clip from a PBS documentary which <laughs> it explores one of Edith Wharton's estates. And I want you to pay particular attention to the expert that they have brought on to discuss Edith Wharton's food. Edith Wharton loved to entertain, and she also liked to entertain outside, and with a garden like this, why not? I'm with Francine Segan, who is a food historian. Hi, Francine. Hello, Bill. It's so lovely to be with you today in this gorgeous Edith Wharton. It is gorgeous here. So you can tell me that it, at a picnic in the late 1800s, the early 1900s, what they were really eating and what was popular and what was in vogue. Exactly. Oh, fun. So let's kind of look at these this wonderful array we have. Mm -hmm. And when they came to a picnic, all the elegance of the time period would have come with them. So they would have brought oh, things nice. like beautiful silver salt mm, and pepper shakers. Nice. And even little... Oh, to sandwich, sandwich picker uppers. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, and then the sandwiches. I love rediscovering the delicious foods that they had. Mm -hmm. yep. They would have made sandwiches with a wonderful minced pineapple and ham. I like that idea, pineapple and ham. It's delicious. What happened to and that? It's, no, I know. I think we should rediscover some of these delicious, yeah, exactly. delicious foods of the yeah. past. Um, that's one recipe, and you're going to love this one. Mm -hmm. Jams were yes. something that were adored yes. in Edith Wharton's time mm. and in the Gilded Age in the late sure. 1800s. She invented the pineapple she, she, and ham she, she pizza. The but why don't they call it the, the, the Edith Wharton? The Wharton. <laughs> Still, I could, do with, I could do with a sandwich picker-up because God knows, God knows, it's on a picnic, that's what you need. It's when she says, when she says I, I'm so excited to be here amidst this beautiful Edith Wharton. <laughs> I'm, oh I'm sorry, you know, yeah. I'm sorry, sorry for you sorry, mocking your American, American listeners. Yeah. American yeah. listeners, anyway. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, can I just say what uh, the Age of Innocence beat when it won the Pulitzer Prize oh, yes. in 1921? Yes, please. What a year. It beat Sinclair Lewis's Main Street, which was wow. supposed to win, but they decided the judges decided it was too political. Wow. Gave it to Age of wow. Innocence. How about that? Perhaps decisions like that are being made across the world. <laughs> yes. I thought this might be quite interesting. All these wonderful women writers, Hermione Lee and Anita Bruckner, and here, Penelope Lively, write about Wharton. And, John, you were saying what, what had happened to Wharton's reputation. And this is Penelope Lively on, on that subject. I think you might find this very interesting. She says, Edith Wharton's reputation has undergone interesting vicissitudes. In her own lifetime, she moved from small beginnings to bestsellerdom, enjoying both wide readership and high literary esteem, and enabled by her earnings to make the well-meant but grandiloquent clandestine gesture of diverting part of her own royalties from Scribner's to Henry James as a hefty advance on a new novel. James was astonished, deceived and gratified. <laughs> That's lovely. But she was always an uneven writer. Her large oeuvre veers from the accomplishment of masterpieces like Ethan Frome, The Reef, the House of Mirth and the Age of Innocence, to secondary works like Hudson River Bracketed and some of the stories. She was prolific, writing travel books, a manual on interior decoration and even a startling fragment of unpublished pornography. But by the end of her life in... in, in <laughs> Thwarton. Um, by the end of her life in 1937, she had fallen victim to swings in literary taste and social preoccupations. Her novels were seen as old-fashioned and her concerns as elitist and of minimal interest. It was the age of Lawrence and Joyce. She was relegated to the ranks of lesser writers. In England, indeed, she remained a fairly unknown name until a recent revival of interest in the appearance of her work in paperback. So that's Virago. Right, yeah. Her biographer felt constrained to wonder in the first comprehensive examination of her life and work whether her reputation might today stand even higher if she had been a man. She had been seen, indeed, as a poor man's Henry James, a comparison that is inevitable given their relationship and her undoubted debt to his advice and criticism, with its consequent reflection in her style and approach. This, though, is both to underestimate and misinterpret her work. Edith Wharton was her own woman. 
and at her best she combines muscularity and dash with an individual perception and strong psychological insight. That's pretty good. Isn't I it? think that's a really yeah. good, and that's really true. I think of the stories in Ghosts. Yeah. yeah, you know, they're often the thing about psychological insight is the is the engine of the story, less yeah. than the scare. Absolutely right. I wonder. It's a really interesting why she was motivated to collect them at that stage in her life. Whether it's a sort of because actually, as a collection, it, they do work brilliantly together. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, if you've written a lot, if you've written, what was it, 89 stories? 86. Oh, sorry, 86 <laughs> stories. And, you, you know, the, the, the problem is how do you make collections of stories add up to more than the sum of their parts? Yeah. And actually, you could argue that, that, you know, they all echo the same themes. And obviously the ghost is, is the idea that links them together. Yeah. There is a quote in A Backward Glance where she specifically talks about the two worlds that she exists in. And she describes the world of literature as the supernatural world and the normal world as everyday life. Mm-hmm. And so I think she definitely saw that kind of transportive and transformative kind of quality of the supernatural. Also, if you look at her childhood, it's like that of a Gothic heroine. You know, she was trapped in these kind of suffocating interiors. She was restrained and criticised by her mother. She was left alone in these big, huge houses. You know, it's mm. kind of... And I think she identified with that. And I think also her coming to terms with the supernatural as, as a story in terms of a thing that used to terrify her and then a thing that she uses as a way to write about class and the relationships between men and women. I think its importance grows as she gets older. It, it, it also struck yeah. me that... Yeah. You can't really do ghost novels in the same way. There's something about the short form yeah. that is perfect for, <laughs> for... Except Beyond Black. <laughs> yes, but that is... Turn of the Screw? It's a novella. A novella. Beyond Black is in its own league of, yeah. of uh, I think. Yes, okay. It's invented its own genre, Beyond Black. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, but point taken, I mean, in fact, it, it, that in a way is a praise. There's just more praise heaped on Beyond Black. There's nobody else. I don't yeah. can't think of a book where where the supernatural... I think the rule has just been proved. Yeah. <laughs> Very quickly, there's another quote from a backward glance which relates to the pomegranate seed before we move on to it, and it's her talking about writing. And she says, words lured me from the wholesome noonday air of childhood into some strange supernatural region where the normal pleasures of my age seemed as insipid as the fruits of the earth to Persephone after she had eaten of the pomegranate seed. Ah, well, you see, I'd rather read the pomegranate seed than the whole of Lawrence's oeuvre, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Mitch. (laughs) Down the dumper he goes. Oh, well. One day, um, one day, Andy. It, it's a tremendous story. It's relentless. It's never. It's yes. like it's like the the slow approach of a shunting train. Yeah. You know, when you're tied to the and track. Of course, we know pretty much straight away what the letters are. The, the plot is that there is a young woman called Charlotte Ashby who is married a widower called Kenneth Ashby, uh, and the first Mrs. Ashby um, was quite a, a, a powerful figure. And, and and the the husband was supposed to be very in love with her, but nevertheless he seems to be very very happy in his his second marriage. There are two children from the first marriage. They come back off honeymoon, and there is a letter waiting in the hall in a squarish grey envelope, and the letter distresses the husband in some indefinable way, and the letters keep coming. They're always hand delivered. They're always on the hall table waiting, and every time he gets one, it changes him. She's worried he's slowly killing him. And in the end, uh, she spies on him one night when he's opening it and she sees him read it and she sees him kiss the letter. And Charlotte Ashby accuses him of having an old lover that he's still in contact with and he denies it absolutely. He says it's a business, a business acquaintance from the past. And eventually, Charlotte tries to break the spell and uh, suggests they should go away on holiday. And the husband says, yes, I will arrange that. We'll go tomorrow and then... He disappears and one last letter turns up. And I'm going to just just read a bit. The first time she opens it, she tried to slip her finger under the flap of the envelope, but it was so tightly stuck that she had to hunt on her husband's writing table for his ivory letter opener. As she pushed about the familiar objects, his own hands had so lately touched. They sent through her the icy chill emanating from the little personal effects of someone newly dead. In the deep silence of the room, the tearing of the paper as she slipped the envelope sounded like a human cry. She drew out the sheet and carried it to the lamp. Well, 
Mrs Ashby asked below her breath. Charlotte did not move or answer. She was bending over the page with wrinkled brows, holding it nearer and nearer to the light. Her sight must be blurred or else dazzled by the reflection of the lamplight on the smooth surface of the paper, for strain her eyes as she would, she could discern only a few faint strokes, so faint and faltering as to be nearly undecipherable. I, I can't make it out, she said. What do you mean, dear? The writing's too indistinct. Wait. She went back to the table and, sitting down close to Kenneth's reading lamp, slipped the letter under magnifying glass. All the time she was aware that her mother-in-law was watching her intently. Well, Mrs Ashby breathed. Well, it's no clearer. I, I can't read it. You mean the paper is absolute blank? No, not quite. There is writing on it. I can make out something like, mine. Oh, and come. It might be, come. Lissa. Uh, <laughs> yes. Right. I love this story. Yes. I understand why it's your favourite. <laughs> but, and spoilers, everyone, you can fast forward, say, a minute and a half. I didn't understand the ending. I put my hand up and say, I don't understand the ending. Tonally, I think I got it. But do, the but gathered please. experts around the table, For what me, happens is, yes, that, go, yeah, go. in a nutshell, the mm. wife and the husband's mother seem to me to say to one another, we are women, we have no option but to carry on. Is that right? For me, I, it's keeping up appearances. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, that, that, that who could they ever explain this to? Yeah. They have to act as if he's going to come back. They have to act as if this is in some way normal. Uh, also, Which, of course, the, the symbolic level there is pretty straightforward, yeah. right? But important. I also think there's a, there's a thing, a, an ongoing thing in all the stories, which I kind of mentioned earlier, this kind of moving into the modern to, to escape the Gothic. And I think there's a definite theme running through this story that's about that, because there's that quote. Outside there, she thought, skyscrapers, yeah. advertisements, yeah. telephones, wireless, aeroplanes, movies, right. motors, and all the rest of the 20th century. And on the other side of the door, something I can't explain... I can't relate to them. Something as old as the world, as mysterious as life. And I think that's what it's about. It's about... Because I think when Wharton was kind of critiqued at the, uh, after her death, a lot of the time it was by the modernists, wasn't it? Yeah, that's and, you right. Know, and in a, but in a sense, she is a kind of modernist, you know, and she is reworking tr old classical tropes for, to new ends. And she is kind of questioning kind of the role of these old, old tropes within a modern, modern era. Yeah. As a book that she's taken a selection of stories written throughout her life and made them into some kind of statement, something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. It really ought to be Absolutely. in print in its own right. It, it, it actually rather reminded me of uh, what Alan Garner did when it, with his book of Goblins, where he edited, oh, yeah. you know, you know that, that idea of a really thought-through anthology kind of redefines what a goblin is through yeah. that anthology. It's the same thing, isn't it? The ghosts in this book, as we say, that the bottle of Perrier isn't really a ghost at all, but it's, a, it's, it's the idea that, that is the ghost. I, I'd go so far as to argue that they are some of her most autobiographical stories, informed by her own story, her own shifts in terms of her romances, in terms of her kind of emotional development. And I think the supernatural is key because she starts off as a woman terrified of the supernatural and then she comes to use them as the as this way of writing about herself but a way of writing about women in the turn of the century and class and men i mean yes she's doing that in the other books as well but the fact that there is as as lissa says there's so much sex and threat and things that she wasn't writing about as explicitly in the in the, in the novels i don't think mm. I don't know what Virago are planning. I know they're planning to re reissue it. Would they not just reissue it as ghosts by Edith Wharton? I mean, it, it just seems like... Come on, a, Donna, I know you're listening. Um, <laughs> it just would seem like an absolutely brilliant yeah, thing to do. Indeed. I would also like to add, before we wrap up, that I had one of those lovely things when preparing for this episode, where a reminder that sometimes a book is in the canon not because a cultural gatekeeper has insisted it be there, but because it's really good. <laughs> and so I read several books in the run-up to this episode, including The Age of Innocence, 
And the reason why The Age of Innocence is widely referred to as a masterpiece and one of the greatest novels of the earliest 20th century is because it's a masterpiece <laughs> and, one of, and one of the greatest novels of the earliest 20th century. What an incredible book yeah, that is. I've never read it. I must oh, read it. See, that's what I mean, yeah. because it seems too obvious, right? Yeah, I saw I would read that. But oh, it's not, amazing. Because you know. she's called Edith Wharton, isn't it? Yeah. It's, a, it's a bit she of a buzzkill. Yeah. <laughs> she was good on names as well. Can I just say that The Custom of the Country, uh, another of her oh. most her greatest books, contains one of the greatest anti-heroines of all yes. time. Sort of like Becky Sharp, but dimmer, yeah. called Undine Sprague. <laughs> and, and it is so worth reading. Oh. Undine Sprague. OK, that's, I'm afraid, all we have time for. Huge thanks to Lissa and Andrew, to our producer, Nikki Birch, and to our spirit guides at Unbound. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You could bring it back around to Halloween, everybody. Shake some chains. You can download all 77 backlist, backlisted. <laughs> well, John, why not write this in a way I can say it? <laughs> you can, you can download all 77 backlisted, plus follow up all the links, clips and suggestions for further reading on our website, backlisted.fm and of course you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook and Boundless. We hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we all have. We always love the Halloween episodes. Thanks, Lissa. Thanks, Andrew, for rising from the grave. Back to the plot with you. (laughs) Um, If you've enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review with stars if you feel so moved on iTunes or whichever platform lights your tallow candle. Oh! I say. <laughs> it's all about sex, Lisa. It's all about it's all about sex. Well, that's it. See you in a fortnight. Good evening, <laughs> If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www patreon.com forward slash backlisted as well as getting the show early you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call lock listed which is andy me and nikki talking about the books music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight